Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson. In this episode, we have Dr. Jordan Moxie and Dr. Carol Sinnett, who are both at the Department for Public Health and Primary Care, the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute in Cambridge. Jordan is a medical doctor and program coordinator, and Carol is a senior clinical research associate and a GP. Now, the paper is identifying how GPs spend their time and the obstacles they face, a mixed methods study. Now, this is a really interesting study that is fundamentally about direct observations of what consumes GPs' time and what disrupts their ability. Those are known as operational failures, and I started by asking Carol to tell us a little bit more about what they were exploring here and what they mean by operational failures. So we were interested even in looking at um, how GPs' work environment supports them to do the work that they do or how it doesn't offer sufficient support for them to do their work tasks efficiently. So to do this, we borrowed this concept of operational failures from the secondary care literature and particularly the nursing literature. And in that literature, operational failures are defined as problems in the supply of information or materials or equipment to healthcare professionals. Um, And these these problems in the supply of things to healthcare professionals uh, lead to problems executing a task or completing a a task. So an example would be... um, For example, in the nursing literature would be um, a nurse needs to check someone's temperature, but the thermometer probe covers are missing. So she has to go to a different ward to find those things. And that turns what should be a 10 second task into a five minute task. Um, From a GP perspective, we found that some of the operational failures are are quite similar to the nursing literature. So common examples for GPs would be, you know, things missing from their room, like urine containers, having to hunt around the practice for those, look for the key for the store cupboard you know, that's gone missing. So they have to try and find the person who's on the coffee break to get the key to open the door to get the urine containers to come back in and, and get the urine sample off a patient. Um, or very commonly problems with IT. They were really much more common actually in our GP cohort than there were in the nursing literature. So crashing computer programs, software really slowing down, not being able to launch forms, for example, to order blood test request forms. So there, so collectively these things are called operational failures. We took the concept from the secondary care literature, explored that in GP and found that some of the things resonated with the nursing literature, but GPs experience a whole world of other operational failures that previously were not defined in secondary care literature at all. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a really interesting concept and well worth um, exploring further. It sounds a little bit dramatic, operational failures, like it's going to be something, you know, huge or kind of in the significant event, significant untoward incident kind of, serious untoward incident kind of category. But it's just that stuff sometimes which just has you chew in the desk in frustration. I saw I saw someone on Twitter, one well-known doctor on Twitter yesterday or maybe the day before, um, post that it took, I think, 17 minutes for their computer to start up in the morning. And that I guess that's the kind of classic operational failure, isn't it? It is. And, and, and very hard to kind of to change yourself. And sometimes, you know, if it is a case of missing paper from your printer or the missing urine container, you're not going to launch a big practice meeting to try and address this issue. You're just going to go and get it. And, and it's the fact that you most GPs try and sort it themselves just to try and get on with the next patient that they need to see that it actually never gets kind of sorted out at a higher level. Yeah, really interesting. So tell us a little bit more about how you did this study um, and, um, and then we can find out a little bit more about what you found. Yeah, sure. Um, so I can I can take that question. Uh, so the, the study actually, it was it's designed on the back of two previous studies. So we had uh, previously done a big review of the literature. We did an interview study of GPs. Um, and we we knew that these operational failures or everyday obstacles happened. But what we hadn't got was really a comprehensive overview of the work that GPs do on a hour to minute to second basis, and also what sort of operational failures or, or obstacles were happening. 
also very regularly. So that was the aim of the study really was to get a really comprehensive overview of all of those things and actually record quantitatively how many times these things are happening and how much of GP's time is it actually taking up. And then secondly, we wanted to sort of supplement that with uh, ethnographic methods. So we took detailed field notes and we interviewed GPs after the observation session so that we could really truly contextualize what was observed in how GPs felt those consultations went. So it was the kind of the combination of the um, what we call time motion methods, which is a, a, it's a, a term to describe uh, observing what goes on and, and paying particular attention to the time things take and sort of the movement involved in those tasks. Uh, and then also the kind of qualitative field notes and the qualitative interviews and combining it together to come up with the, the sort of the results and the insights that we bring out in this work. Um, I have to admit, I really love this paper. I just think it just when you're reading it, it's just as a GP and you just look at this and go, yes, yeah, that's what's happening to me. Yes, that's and the, the pain points are so come come forward so clearly in it. But yeah, it's got this kind of really um, thorough um, methodology that underpins it. I wonder if I could get you first of all with the time motion study to give us a tell us a few of the numbers about how GPs are spending their time. Yeah. So to collect the time motion data, we used a program called Wombat, which was uh, designed um, uh, by a team in Australia to specifically collect healthcare professionals activities or actions at work. And, and so the Wombat software program was downloaded onto tablets. So we had three different observers who were all non-clinical, no medics. Um, and they brought these tablets into the sessions that they observed GPs for. And on a second by second um, basis, um, collected what the GPs were doing. And uh, we had pre-programmed categories into the Wombat software. So things like direct patient care and everything that that includes, for example, history taking, examination, doing prescriptions, reading notes, writing referral letters. Then we had a whole set of non-patient care, non-direct patient care activities. So things like checking blood test results, um, reading incoming correspondence, uh, and then other activities like teaching, um, interacting with colleagues. So that's just an example of some of the, some of the things that we collected information on. So, so we, we looked at 61 GPs for a full clinical session. So on average, four hours um, for each GP. The GPs were based in 28 different practices across four CCGs in the East of England. So kind of very broad um, uh, participant um, characteristics included in our sample. And what we found with those GPs is that about 70 72% or so of, uh, patient, uh, of GPs' time was spent in direct uh, patient contact. So either face-to-face um, -face consultations or telephone consultations. Um, this data was collected before the pandemic. So the majority of consultations were face-to-face -face at that time. Um, and then about 12% was spent in non-patient facing clinical care activities. So things like looking at the incoming blood tests, student prescriptions. 5% of GP's time was spent dealing with operation failures. And that was the third most common task group that G GPs were spending time on. So direct patient care, then non-direct patient and um, kind of clinical work. Um, so non-patient facing clinical work, I mean. And then the third most common group of activities was actually resolving problems like looking for missing equipment, looking for missing information, trying to track down someone to, you know, you know, get an ECG electrodes or something for for, 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 for that type of task, um, which is, is, is very significant when you think about it, that the third most common thing that, that we're spending our time on is sorting out problems that maybe we, we could try and address um, and prevent them from happening in the first place and release all of that time for other activities in general practice. Yeah, and obviously the study's got the ethnographic element to it, so we can explore a little bit more about what those operational failures were. So this is probably a good time to tell us a little bit more about what what, what kind of categories do they come into? And perhaps we can start to then think about what people can do differently. 
we found a, a big range of types of operational failures that occurred. But in the paper, we grouped those into four kind of main types. I think one of the, the most evident ones um, that are most sort of uh, important are that GPs are essentially the centerpiece of a very complicated network of people, systems, and they're trying to coordinate lots of different um lots of different inputs into a patient's care so they can make a decision about patient care. So a lot of the operational failures that we uh, we revealed uh, included those such as like missing information. So a GP not having access to a critical discharge letter so that they could make a decision about a patient in front of them. And that worked two ways as well. Perhaps a GP wanting to do a simple task of making a referral, but finding it very difficult because perhaps the referral form is out of date and they can't find the right one or the referral's bounced and it's come back to the GP. So it's things like that um, that the paper really, really showed. Yeah. One of the ones that leapt out to me, that's like an, is, is linked to that sort of GP's coordination role there. So lots of different things there that, uh, you know, and one of the things you mentioned in the paper, though, though GPs are often at the centre of coordinating that care, they don't necessarily have much control over those, that kind of what you described as a distributed network in which we all operate. Yeah, completely. I mean, um, you would like to think that you have control of all of those aspects of things. You can make a decision about a patient or execute a task super efficiently. But actually, the real frustrating thing for a GP is that you can't do what you need to do because you're waiting on something else or a critical piece of information is not available. Uh, And then that obviously also has implications not just on that GP who may feel stress related to that, but also the patient sat in front um, if that means that they have to come back to their GP at a later date. So it has consequences sort of throughout the whole the whole chain from, um, you know, from the GP to the patient themselves. One of the factors that really popped up on this and the results was the, uh, the nature and the um, operational failures around interruptions. Because I think there'd be few of us that haven't had that experience of just that feeling that you're being constantly pulled hither and thither and, uh, and other ones as well related to computers. So thanks. Yeah, interruptions are, they were one of the most common operational failures that we observed in the time motion data. So these interruptions arose from maybe a nursing colleague knocking on the GP's door and asking for input into a sick patient case or getting a prescription signed or an incoming phone call from a member of the admin staff looking for advice from a GP about a particular issue are very commonly electronic interruptions. So instant messages or tasks coming to the forefront of the GP's computer screen. And and these were particularly disruptive for GPs because they were very frequent and almost insidious. So the GP could be speaking to the patient or or listening to the patient telling their history when all of a sudden this message would would appear on their computer screen, which would immediately lead the GP to divert their attention to the computer screen with the patient often not sure what was happening. The GP is now distracted. They might have to kind of get the patient to start repeating themselves. Um, so they are the type of interruptions. Now, GPs had had different views on these interruptions. Uh, many maintained that these open channels of communication were really important in general practice. You need to give your staff an opportunity to be able to access your opinion to maintain a high level of safety in the practice. But others found that, yeah, you know, this issue might require my attention at some stage, but it doesn't require my attention just now when I'm in the middle of a complex consultation with the patient who I'm trying to build rapport with, for example, it's not time critical. It could be better dealt with some other way. So, so they were some of the interruption-related operation failures, which you know disrupted work and protracted consultations and increased risk. Um, in some cases, other ones that you just mentioned there were, were to do with the technology. So, um, 
you know, computer systems that were slow, that 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 needed rebooting, um, difficulty opening forms, for example, your, your blood request forms or your x-ray forms, um, certain patient notes, which were very large, took a very long time to open. And some GPs actually taking steps to avoid these type of kind of crashing incidents with the computers, not deliberately not opening a set of patient notes um, until after a consultation because they didn't want it to crash multiple times and, and, and disrupt that consultation significantly. Um, the information thing that Jordan has already spoken about, just the, the efficient channeling information from other healthcare providers based outside the practice, but also within the practice, information could sometimes go askew or be directed to the wrong um, GP. You know, for example, if, if continuity was disrupted and incoming information was sent to the wrong GP, then that GP might have to spend a particularly long length of time familiarising themselves with that patient case. When if it had been possibly directed to the GP more familiar with that patient, it could have led to greater efficiency for, for everyone involved, both the patient, the GP and, and the practice as a whole. God, there's a tremendous amount in this paper. We can only sort of touch on some of the key areas. And I think there's an awful lot here that anybody reading it who's involved in practice or, you know, setting policy, the um, there's an awful lot here to actually start picking out. What, any other key areas you'd like to mention to actually to flag some of the important findings here? I'd say one other thing that's really come out of this work is that GP's schedules rarely allow them the time that they actually need to get work done. So... If you then add the sort of 5% of extra tasks are dealing with things that are like trying to find things or not having the right information what you need when you need it, then that is that puts a lot of pressure on already very, very pressurized schedules. So when we're thinking about, let's say, a practice level of how you might redesign uh, processes internally, where are we going to find time for GPs to be able to do that? So I think one of the key messages from the paper is that actually, if we can free up time within a general general practitioner's schedule, then it will allow space for improvements to happen at a practice level. Now, we can go on to talk about things at the sort of policy level as well. But I think um, that's, uh, yeah, that's a conversation I think we could, we could have. Yeah. Carol, you got, have you got any key points that you'd like to make sure we mention? Uh, yeah, I, th- I, think th- I think our data... Um, goes a long way to explain how complicated GP's work is. And the image of general practice work um, is often, you know, I think from a lay perspective is that GP work is much more straightforward than than what the reality actually is. And for us to simply organise care outside our practice with some other, whether they're community-based providers or providers at secondary care level, and get that information back and continue our ongoing responsibilities towards that patient actually involves so many more steps and frustrations and sometimes challenges than I think um, most people who work outside general practice would ever have perceived before that. Yeah, and certainly, well, yeah, I completely agree. I think the picture of general practice that's put forward and has been put forward in recent times by the media and by politicians is exceptionally crude and um, just uh, inadequate. And particularly that the kind of demand for more face-to-face. And your paper does a brilliant job of actually getting across the complexity and even when, you know, kind of you account for clinic schedules and appointment times, and you describe that in this fictive schedule. And I really like that kind of description of what GPs are actually doing. Um, there has been little sign that the um, uh, the policymakers, as they stand at the very highest levels, understand the pressures. And this is a really, it gets that across really well. And of course, there are ways we should always reduce operational failures, as you've described them as best we can. But they're a product of the system, aren't they? Partly the way that the way the system is run just now as well. 
and, and general GPs by our very nature, we're, we're, well, you know, possibly speaking a bit too generally here, but most of us are pragmatists and, and we try and just get work done as quickly as we can and just move on. Um, and, and by doing that, we're possibly our own worst enemy, you know, so by not drawing attention to these problems, um, we're not allowing them to, to be improved on more substantially. Um, so I think, that, like, we're really hopeful that this the material in this paper will be useful to a really broad spectrum of readers. So GPs and practice managers might see themselves, might be able to identify with some of the things we've described and, and, and now see those problems within their own practices and maybe start taking some steps to realign their processes to, to better suit all of the staff within the practice. Obviously, that will, you know, any, any, any change that they wish to implement will require time and resources, as Jordan has already mentioned. Um, but at higher level or a more kind of um, network-based level, primary care networks, teams working with ICSs, CCGs, to look at this and say, you know, um, before we ask GPs to do any more than what they're already doing, we need to look at how well we're supporting them to do, you know, what we're asking them to do and and um, facilitate as much as possible their communication with their, their community-based colleagues or their secondary care-based colleagues um, and, you know, support things like the IT operations within practices to streamline work and reduce the frustrations that, you know, really could be the straw that breaks break the camel's back for a lot of GPs these days. They're facing huge workload. And these kind of frustrations just really, really, um, you know, add to the stress that, that, that GPs are putting up with them on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think that's important. It's not to so much conceptualise them as inefficiencies that should be ground out of the system. I think they're just really damaging to the individuals that work in those systems and they add significantly to burnout. And it's certainly not um, getting rid of those sort of operational failures isn't the answer to creating capacity in general practice either. That needs a whole host of other policies and um, not yes. to mention the numbers and how we structure care. But they're really important, I think, for that particular reason that actually this is the kind of thing that drives hard pressed individuals to the very brink and they, they start leaving the profession and the, the speciality. I think that's really that's really key message here. Jordan, I'm going to give you the final word if there's anything you'd like to add just to to round things out. Yeah, sure. I think um, I think one thing that this this work has shown is that you know, GPs can't fix the GP crisis on their own, right? It, it involves everybody that Carol has mentioned, all of these different system stakeholders to come together to really think about what shall we prioritise for improvement. That needs to be a, a consensus, really. Uh, and I feel like. Um, yeah, this this work does a lot to basically put everyone on a common understanding of what is actually happening on the ground in general practice. Where are the issues? All right, now we all know this. What can we do together to make things better? And that's what we hope that the paper will achieve moving forwards. Um, yeah, I think it does that. It's incredibly valuable. Um, Jordan, Carol, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again.